welcome to Dave's Disney View Podcast. A one-time cast member, a long-time visitor, and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, Dave brings you his unique perspective on the Walt Disney World Resort. The music you're hearing on this podcast is actually from a friend of the show named Craig Brown. You can check him out at ReverbNation.com slash SoundA, as an Apple, or MySpace.com slash SoundA. Craig does a number of different things. Uh, this particular piece is called A Major Suspension, Suspended Glory. So please, do check him out, and we thank Craig for his music. Throughout the show, we ask that there be no eating, drinking, smoking, or flash photography. So please keep your hands and arms inside the moving vehicle at all times, and enjoy the show. Thank you! Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And my thanks to friend of the show, Doug, who's over at geekacres.net. You can check him out, check out his podcast, and be a geek. Geekacres.net. This podcast is part of a series. Hi, everyone. It's Dave. How is everybody doing? Well, over the last couple of podcasts, I've been taking you around with me to various uh, food stops around uh, the Walt Disney World Resort. As you may recall, a friend and I were on a 18-month uh, quest to get to every restaurant on Disney property. The only place we haven't talked about yet is Epcot, and uh, I'd like to get to Epcot now and tell you more about that. So Epcot, uh, as you know, is divided into two lands, uh, two major areas, so I'd like to try to break it up in those areas to make it easier to kind of get through. So on the east side of Future World, inside Communicore, which is now called Interventions, you had the uh, Stargate restaurant. The counter service was kind of like the uh, Starlight Cafe, other, otherwise known as uh, Cosmic Rays. And it had that sort of feeling to it with burgers and such. and It even had the same sort of style, um, the way it was laid out. Uh, except there was no Sunny Eclipse playing, so you knew you were somewhere else. Um, there was also a place that served frozen yogurt that made a nice, cool treat as you were making your way toward Mexico. So as you kind of headed over that way, you could uh, go to Mexico and uh, get that uh, frozen treat. Inside the Wonders of Life Pavilion was a counter-service restaurant that served healthy snacks. Um, I liked stopping by for a sandwich and enjoying the anacomical players, the uh, tongue-in-cheek troupe that performed the anatomy-based humor. And finally, there was a counter-service restaurant on the border between Future World and World Showcase called the Odyssey Restaurant that served various items like hot dogs and hamburgers. And at the time, it was still open. Now it's been long closed. I mean, you walk by there and you'd never even know there was a restaurant there except for the fact that there's the signage and the, what looks like the old registers that are still sitting there. Um, it suffered from the same thing as the Tomorrowland Terrace. It, it's a bad location that crowds usually bypass, and generally uninteresting or uninspired food. I ate there, but really didn't think much of it. It wasn't that spectacular. It was just kind of there, uh, especially with the stuff you could find in World Showcase that was so much better. So I would say on the east side of Future World, I hit everything. Um, went through all four uh, food spaces there. On the west side of uh, Future World, this side is more interesting overall. And from a food standpoint, there are better and tastier choices. So in Communicore, you had the uh, Sunrise Terrace, which served pasta and salads. Now, the pasta and salads weren't that great, but they had a seating area that faced the fountain. And that made it uh, okay in my book, because you'd get your food and you'd kind of go outside and sit by the fountain. Plus, for, the, for a time, they had misters set up to make it cooler as you dined. So you could sit out there, and you could kind of enjoy the refreshing air a little bit. And it was a little bit cooler, and you could watch the fountain, and it was kind of nice. If you picked an afternoon time, the sun was uh, setting behind the building, and uh, you know the misters there and the fountain just kind of made it all very relaxing um, during a hot day. Now, the other thing about the Sunrise Terrace was that you could sit on the patio and watch the sunrise if you were there at the right time of day, and occasionally they would open up early to allow entry 
So you could actually watch the sunrise while having breakfast. So if you were there at the right time of year, you could be on the sunrise terrace watching the sunrise and uh, kind of enjoying the, uh, the view a little bit and really having, some, um, having a little breakfast and coffee or whatever. This was a special treat you kind of had to know about. It was unadvertised. You know, the... Now there were two pavilions over on this side that had dining options as well. The first one was inside the Living Seas and it's called the Coral Reef. This was kind of a neat place. It had a certain ambiance to it, a certain romantic feel because you're under the sea sort of, and a charm that you don't find in restaurants around pretty much anywhere. But it always seemed odd to me that you were eating at a fish restaurant while the fish were watching you. Just kind of, you know, seemed kind of creepy in its own weird way. The food was delicious and uh, maybe a little pricey, but it was always good. At the time, it was a high-end place. Now I understand it's a very expensive place, but I found it to be worth it. It was nice for a special occasion type meal. It was special and unique and fit the mold of not being anything like anything you've been anywhere else. So I thought that really fit in. The one thing I remember is that it's difficult to get a table right by the tank, but we were early, nice, and really um, were passionate about wanting to sit by the, uh, uh, sitting right by the tank and got seated um, near the tank uh, finally at, in one of our dining experiences. It was just, you know, one of those things where it's, it's all about being nice to, to people. You know, it's like, I would really love to sit there. Is there any chance I could? And, you know, you just have to be nice and, and ask the question. And sometimes it works out for you, and in our case, it did. You know, I would, I would rank this in one of my top five dining experiences overall. Now, one thing I, I will say, there was something interesting about this restaurant that I always kind of thought of. When I'd sit there and I'd be eating, I always had the feeling that I was on the other side of part of Horizons. There's this one part in Horizons where you were going along and you were, um, you were looking out into the water and there was supposed to be like this undersea pod where people were dining inside it. And they were, the little girl is standing by the window and she's looking at a sea lion. I always felt like somewhere in the back of my mind that I was in that dining, in that restaurant, in the pod, looking out at the undersea. I know that's not what it was, but it always evoked that as I'd look out there and, and see, the, uh, see the fish swimming around in the aquarium. It just kind of felt that way to me. It was really pretty cool. Now, next up is the land. Now, the land is really interesting. It's, it's my favorite experience location in Epcot. Now, I have to give respects to Horizon, give my props to Horizons, but overall I thought the land was a more complete experience and I think, you know, that's probably why I liked it overall better. And it was one of the top two or three things to do in all of Disney World and I, I really enjoyed going there. Um, and I'd say that I don't enjoy it quite as much since they've monkeyed with it a little bit and it's different, but it's still a pretty neat place to go. It's just not the same as it used to be. There were two distinct uh, dining experiences contained within the pavilion. As you walked in, you could smell the food. And taking a few steps to the railing, you could see the food court and its fun nature with the balloons and the rooster that crowed on the hour um, right there in the, uh, in the atrium. Now, here's the thing. You know, I, I went back and I Googled it and I tried to find all the information about the food stands that were there. I went and I found that there was the farmer's market from Lost Epcot. And I can see there was a potato store, a barbecue, and a cheese shop. And I also recall that there was a fruit and vegetable stand, and I'm fr fairly certain that they had a... Also, if memory serves, most of what was served there, so at least as far as the fruit and veggies were concerned anyway, was grown in the greenhouse in the back of the pavilion. Or at least that was the company line anyway. So in effect, they were growing uh, using new techniques, and you were eating the fruits, pun intended, of their labor. And uh, of course, there was an ice cream stand among all of the, uh, <laughs> all of the different uh, locations there in the farmer's market, and you could get the ice cream there. I made a point uh, in various trips to try each of them, so I tried something at each one of these stands, and I thought they were all really good. But for some reason, the fruit salad with the yogurt sauce stands out, as do the barbecued ribs. There was something about each of them that makes you remember it very well. 
Now, I remember having a family gathering one time where we were there, and it was kind of like being in the mall food court. Everybody went off, got their food. We all came back, and we just you know, pushed a bunch of tables together and had a great time. We probably spent, I don't know, two or three hours in there just having so much fun. I think my uncle had taken a helium balloon and was you know, starting to talk, and then everybody started doing it, and it just became a really fun and memorable experience. Uh, it was a really good time. The other location that they had there was the uh, land grill, grill room, and that was on the upstairs portion, which had only recently been changed to the Good Turn restaurant. I had eaten there a number of times at the land grill room, and uh, it, uh, it was different and unique. And even as the Good Turn, it was still, uh, still really unique. What makes it different is that it actually revolves so that over the course of about 45 minutes, you look over the entire ride, the listen to the land ride, I'll say, for part of the time, and then are looking at a mural for part of the time, and are looking at the lobby for part of the time, as it goes around in a circle. The food was always good and I enjoyed riding it. It was kind of fun to hang out and relax and enjoy the changing view and eat away. Over time it's had several incarnations. Um, I think, well, I think it's changed again, but most recently it was a, a table service uh, restaurant uh, with all-you-can-eat food um, with Mickey, Pluto, Chip and Dale all in uh, like farmer's gear. And it was pretty good. You know, maybe not quite as good as it once was. You know, sometimes memories are better than the reality. But, uh, but it was pretty good, and it was uh, very entertaining and, uh, you know, just kind of fun to sit there and watch, you know, watch the world go by and have Chip and Dale and everybody there. It's, uh, it was a very fun restaurant, and I really enjoyed that. So let's start talking about walking around the world. You know, some of my uh, friends and colleagues and fellow cast members used to go out and on a, you know, on a day off, they'd go drinking around the world, um, see how far they could make it uh, drinking alcohol as they started from Mexico and made their way to uh, uh, Canada. But, uh, you know, me, I, I'm not much on drinking, but I, I like to eat around the world at Epcot. So we'll start off with Mexico and go around that direction. Since this is typically the direction I'd come into the uh, park because I'd go through Epcot. Um, in Mexico, there are two dining locations. You had the San Angel Inn, Restaurante, located inside the pavilion. It's um, kind of like some of the more upscale Mexican restaurants you see outside the parks with the colorful decor, and that's a fairly typical Mexican fare. It's different, though, because of the Mayan temple that's there in the background and the boat ride that passes next to the restaurant. I remember coming here and enjoying a nosh on chips and salsa and then having a nice fajita. It was uh, tasty and filling and had a nice, uh, very flavorful. We uh, stopped in a couple of times to enjoy the atmosphere, especially since the food was moderately priced. It was a fun place to go. And the other uh, place was a counter service restaurant outside the main building, sitting right on the water, the Cantina de San Angel. It uh, served some burritos and tacos and uh, margaritas and beer. I think the only thing I ever got there was churros, but that was good enough because they were pretty good. You know, nice little tasty uh, fried treat. Next up would be uh, Norway. Um, like Mexico, Norway has a pair of restaurants that serve the guests. First, the sit-down uh, Akershus, which in uh, like 1992 was a buffet that served a variety of Norwegian dishes that were interesting to those of us with the yen to try some different cuisine. Um, I really can't recall anything specific that I ate there um, that I tried, but I do remember that there were some unusual dishes and some herring-related fare, and it was, you know, it was pretty good. It was, uh, it was fun to try. My, uh, I enjoyed it a lot, but I remember my dining companion was a little bit more of a picky eater and didn't want to try some of the dishes and would kind of turn up her nose at it, and I thought that was, that was fine. I was willing to try it. These days, I understand it's become a little bit tamer and there are more choices for the American palate, especially since it's a princess meal now, but it's supposed to be still very good. Um, outside is the Kringla Bakery, and that's the uh, counter service restaurant. It's more of a bakery with some sweets, um, but there are a few sandwiches and other food items available. Next up is China. Uh, China also has two restaurants. You have the Nine Dragons sit-down restaurant that serves traditional Chinese fare. And I remember eating in this restaurant, but I don't recall much about it. I, 
you know, I might have had like duck or something, but we had some other friends along who weren't too keen to move out of their comfort zone. And so they had something like maybe egg rolls and uh, sweet and sour chicken or something very familiar. Hey, more power to them. I, I appreciate the fact that they came with us and they were willing to try it. And at least they went along with the idea and tried some real Chinese as opposed to the uh, everyday takeout you get in most places, which I thought was pretty good. And, you know, they, they thought the food was good, too, and I, I really um, liked that. It's also a counter service restaurant that serves simple fare, such as egg rolls and um, other things, the uh, Lotus Blossom Cafe. Nothing wrong with it, of course, but I, I didn't love it. I, I prefer, you know, a little bit more uh, depth to my food. It had sup a simple noodle, noodle dish that I had that was tasty, but, um, you know, not something I really wanted to go back and try to get again. Next up is Germany. Like the other restaurants in, uh, within uh, Epcot's uh, World Showcase, the uh, German Pavilion has two food stops. One's a counter service and the other is a sit-down. The beer garden, literally beer garden, has a distinct feel of being in a small town in Germany and eating outside in a cafe. Now, having done this, eating in a cafe outside in a small town in Germany, um, the Imagineers did capture the spirit of being in such a cafe. Now, the theming is a festive Oktoberfest. There's an Oompa band playing throughout the evening. I didn't mind the music, but I found them to be loud, and it took away from the experience rather than adding to it. Or at least that was my opinion of it. My friend and I ate here once during the tour, but it was a trip um, here in the 80s that I remember best. And here's another story about my grandfather. <laughs> he started talking to the person at the table next to him and telling very tall tales, kind of exaggerating the truth to a large degree, but having a lot of fun with it. It was, it was really fun to hear him tell a story that was completely made up. And he just was making up stories about our family and different things, and it was hysterical. I mean, I was just amazed at the length he went to to tell a story. And then I asked him about it later. He goes, well, I felt like telling a story, and I didn't have one. I thought, wow, that's pretty good. Got to love it. The counter service is uh, Summerfest, and I remember going in there and getting a German pretzel distinctly. Not so unlike the Philadelphia pretzel, you know, in a sense, where you're just having this giant pretzel. But, um, you know, so at least it was tasty, and I could say I ate something there. And the next up is Italia. Italy had only one dining option at the time, Le Originale Alfredo di Roma, which was an extension of the original restaurant they had in Rome. This is the first we, uh, location we ever ate at an Epcot when it opened. And I still remember that I got the Fettuccine Alfredo since that was invented there. Well, at the one in Rome, anyway. Um, so I had to get it, and it was, it was really pretty good. I, you know, I'd had Fettuccine Alfredo maybe once before in my life, and it was just okay, and this was really good. And it's not like the stuff you get in restaurants. It was, you know, more cheesy, less creamy, and, you know, just really very, a very good mix of uh, flavors. And I, I really enjoyed it. And, of course, during the, uh, the dining tour, we had to eat there, and the restaurant was still spectacular at the time. Just a, you know, just a feel of being in Italy to a large degree. You'd walk in, and, you know, just the way they treated you and the, the things that they did were, were kind, of, kind of good. I, I managed to get there a couple more times before they closed in 2007, but I have to say I'm sad to see it go. It was a... That was one of those places that I really enjoyed going and uh, was sorry to see it go. Continuing on along the World Showcase, in the middle of World Showcase, right across from the main entrance, so if you look straight across from when you come in, you'll see the American Adventure, is uh, occupied by America, as in the United States. I never really understood why they call it America, because certainly America includes a lot of different things, but the buildings themselves uh, are kind of interesting. They draw inspirations from various sources in the colonial new world. So you see uh, elements from many different uh, sources in different states, and they kind of amalgamate them into an interesting sort of look. You have sort of a Philadelphia, sort of a um, New Englandy look, sort of a New York look. It's, it's kind of interesting how they've put it together. 
And inside the uh, main building, if you're uh, headed over toward the American Adventure, they have the a cappella group that sings there uh, in the lobby. And it's really fun to just stop in and listen to them for a couple of minutes, and that, that's always worth a trip. Uh, the food itself is, well, traditional American fare, served counter-style. So you've got uh, hamburgers and hot dogs and apple pie, and you know, none of which, of course, is truly American, but we associate with America. And it's not to say that it's particularly bad. It's just with all the culinary choices you have available to you, this isn't always the best choice to take. Now, I have eaten there a couple of times, and I did eat there on the tour for a quick and cheap bite, bite to eat. You know, and it's fun to soak in the atmosphere a little bit of what looked like a brick building. Um, but I also made time to eat outside, and you can eat outside and watch the world go by. Or if you do what I did, you could actually take the food, kind of get it to go, and sit over by the, the amphitheater when it wasn't in use. And you could actually just kind of look out over the water and just kind of sit there and sit on a bench and just kind of look out over the water and enjoy it. There's a certain charm to that that I really enjoyed and, you know, just uh, very relaxing in a way. So that made it kind of memorable in its own way, forgetting about what the food was. Now, of course, you could get the food from other pavilions and bring it over there and sit there, too. Next up on the tour would be uh, Japan. Now, Japan, the Japan Pavilion does a very nice job, I personally think, of capturing the spirit of Japan. I've been to Japan, and I, I would argue that it has the right feeling to it. Is it like being in Japan? Well, no, not really. I mean, maybe sort of. But it's, it's kind of, it captured the spirit of it without actually feeling like you're actually there. The pavilion is unique in that it has four separate dining areas, and that's good because unlike Japanese restaurants here in the States, in Japan, uh, each restaurant has a specific fare that they offer, like noodles or sushi or tempura or whatever. So there's no combo platter that you can get. You're getting one thing or another. Now, it's changed over the years, I realize, and now they've combined, combined several into a single restaurant, but I'll, I'll always remember it for the way it was. So first off, you had the Yakitori House, which is a counter-service restaurant that serves broiled chicken brushed with a soy glaze. Very typical fast food in Japan and, and uh, really pretty good. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a very simple thing. It's just chicken on skewers with the, uh, with the uh, soy uh, glaze on it, and it's pretty, pretty good. But what I liked about it especially was that it was tucked away upstairs in one of the buildings. You had to kind of like walk to it. It wasn't like obvious from where you were standing. There's a couple of buildings in the Japan Pavilion, and uh, this was one of them that was kind of upstairs and away from everything. Next was the Matsu Noma Lounge, which served sushi, also counter service type sushi. And sort of out of the way, it served uh, sushi and a couple of appetizers. You'd go up there, and uh, again, it was kind of upstairs, and you'd order your sushi, and they'd uh, bring it out in a little bento box. And it was always pretty good. You know, as I'm a sushi connoisseur, I like to think. And um, it wasn't the greatest sushi, but it was pretty darn good. And it was kind of authentic in the way it was served and the way you'd do things at the, uh, uh, sitting at the tables that you were at and so forth. So it was always kind of fun. But I really did like the atmosphere of that place. And some of the appetizers they served were tasty, so I didn't mind coming back. And I'd go in there once in a while and just get a roll or something and just hang out. Next up was Tempura Kiku, which was kind of a fun place. It was uh, sort of this long bar you would sit at. And you'd order tempura that was fried right in front of you, just for you, and served perfectly hot. And for tempura, if you're a tempura lover, this is very important. It has to be served at the right temperature. It has to come out of the, out of the uh, fryer and be put on a plate and given to you because you want to eat it when it still has that crunch before it gets soggy. You want to be able to dip it in your sauce, but uh, it's kind of important. And it was kind of neat because it had that sort of, this was sort of the feel of Japan. You're sitting there and you're in, a, um, in like a bar just ordering it over the counter and they're serving it to you right there. And that is typical of the kinds of uh, counter-service restaurants you see in Japan. So I thought that was really neat because it gave, that, gave you that distinct feeling. Now, I'm not a huge fan of fried food, but there's something about a good tempura, tempura that makes it really memorable. 
And then finally you had the teppanyaki dining room where you have the hibachi style where you would sit and watch the food being prepared like, you know, maybe say a Benihana. This is kind of a fun place. I mean, it's always a fun place to get a meal and kind of watch a show as you're doing it. Now the food, I find this to be true of all of these hibachi style restaurants. The food isn't that great, but it's so much fun to go in those places and interact with the chefs and have them do the little kitschy uh, maneuvers on the, on the grill and flipping the, flipping the, uh, the, uh, the different uh, utensils and you know moving stuff around and throwing the shrimp on your plate. And it's always kind of fun. And I always think that I go there for the show and not the food. So made sure I stopped in there to just check it out. Yeah, I would put it on a par with like the Benihana's of the world. Uh, it's good and very entertaining. Next up is Morocco. Now the pavilion itself is striking. And that's mainly because the King of Morocco sent a group of people to oversee the design and construction of the pavilion, including as legend would have it, um, his own tile people to do the intricate tile work that you see along some of the uh, corridors. Now the lone food stop, actually there's, uh, there are two food stops. There's a little outdoor stand where they serve uh, like a couple of different uh, handheld dishes. And I made sure I ate there. But the other food stop is the restaurant Marrakesh, which serves authentic Middle Eastern food and has a belly dancing show that runs throughout the day. And the odd thing is, I've never eaten there. Not during the tour, not before, and not since. I wanted to. And I'd made birthday arrangements, uh, dining arrangements, I'll be honest, I wanted to, and I had made dining arrangements for my birthday uh, the year that my tour was going on. And there we were, my friend and I sitting outside the restaurant having an argument that pretty much summed up our relationship to that point. I'm not going to get into the details. This is pretty much where my dining experience ended. This is pretty much where my cast member experience ended. This is where a lot of things happened. We didn't stay around at that point for a meal after this argument. This particular location will always hold, uh, I guess, a special place for me. Not necessarily in a good way, but it'll always be the place where my tenure with Disney, my relationship with Disney changed, as did my relationship with my friend. So it kind of, we kind of went our separate ways and I never went back there. And frankly, I'd like to keep it the memory just the way it is. I don't really want to go into the restaurant and, uh, and like upset that memory at all. It just feels right to leave it the way it is. Don't ask me why, I can't really explain it. It just kind of worked out that way. And by the way, that was my worst birthday ever. I've had people tell me the food there is great and the entertainment is good. I just wouldn't know from first-hand experience. Next door is France. France also has four dining locations that cater to the variety of French food. And no, it's not all French fries and French toast. Chefs de France is the fine dining experience and they serve traditional French fare. It's a little formal, but as I recall, the lunch was quite good. I'm sure I had French onion soup among other things because it's something that only a French restaurant can get right. It's one of those things. You go into some place and you order French onion soup and it's, it's okay, but you get it in a French restaurant and it's always otherworldly. There's something about it when they do it right. Bistro de Paris, de Paris is the second location. It's upstairs in the same building as the Chefs de France and it's slightly more upscale and a lot more pricey. What I remember is that we had originally thought it was in fact the same restaurant, just with an upstairs and a downstairs. Then we realized it was two separate restaurants, but that their menus were very similar. Not the same because the upstairs version had a more luxur luxurious touch with things like lobster and duck and tuna tartare, where downstairs the versions were more of a common ingredients like beef, pork, and salmon. Anyway, we decided not to eat there during the tour, partly for cost reasons, partly just because you know we had our experience with France at that point and you know it was just didn't work out. Number three is Au Petit Café, which is like a small sidewalk cafe you might see in France. They serve sandwiches and other light fare outdoors, but undercover. I like this place. Uh, again, I like sitting out outside, enjoying the patio, enjoying the fair, having a cool drink, and watching the world pass by. And what, fun it, what a fun place to do just that. 
As you may have guessed, that's one of the things I like to do, just kind of sitting around and watching the world uh, go by. It's fun to watch other people and enjoy their moment. They're just enjoying themselves. They're having fun. They're at Disney World and they're having a great time. And I like watching that sometimes. And, and what's life without some French pastries anyway? The boulangerie patisserie gave a nice fix of all sorts of pastries, custards, mousse, etc. Uh, this was uh, always a stop at some point when we were in Epcot because everything was really tasty. You just go over there and get yourself a little dessert and enjoy yourself. Britain is represented uh, next. Officially, the Rose and Crown has a dining room and a pub, but really, the pub fare is available in the dining room. Nevertheless, I've made a point of eating at both. The food is typically English, and you can get a variety of uh, toned-down staples such as fish and chips and shepherd's pie. Um, they're not quite the same as what you might get in England, but you know, nice approximations. Then also there's a potato stand on the street which serves some pretty good bakers. And there's also a little window off to the side that serves takeaway fish and chips. And they're surprisingly good since it's fast food after all. Uh, it's just that, you know, you get it and you're like, wow, this is, this is pretty darn good. It was fun a couple of times to just pick up an order of fish and chips and sit on a bench facing the lagoon and enjoy. Another place to just go sit out and relax and enjoy the fresh air and sunshine. And then Canada turns out to be the last outpost. Out and then Canada turns out to be the last outpost for food in World Showcase, and by the last outpost for my world tour. There's but one place to eat in Canada, Le Cellier. While today it's more of the fine dining style as a steakhouse, back in the early 90s it was a buffeteria that served an array of dishes that were not so unfamiliar uh, to what, those of us with American palates. The food was good, the price point was good, and it was plentiful. Uh, there was a certain charm about the pavilion, so I liked it, but Overall, the food wasn't that memorable. You know, I'm sure now, it being a steakhouse and being upscale, I'm, I'm, sure, it, uh, I'm sure it is pretty good. So that wraps up all of the places in uh, Walt Disney World to eat and how we did. So let's look back at how the, how the tally stands. So back in the early 1990s, we decided to, uh, to start trying to go to every restaurant uh, Disney property over the course of 18 months. There were 121 approximately restaurants on property at the time, and uh, we went to 116 of them. So while we did fall short of the quest to eat at all the restaurants, we did manage to eat at 96% of them, which I think is pretty darn good, and I am very proud of that. And that's why I present this podcast to you, because I think it was really pretty cool to go through and eat at all these different places and really experience it and enjoy it and take it all in. There's a lot of interesting things to do. Uh, now there are actually more restaurants than that because there's more uh, dining locations that have opened. And of course, the Animal Kingdom wasn't open when we were there. So that's uh, certainly changed. And now you have the entirety of the west side of downtown Disney that's open, uh, that's got additional food stops. And I've eaten at many of these, and in future podcasts I may talk about those and how my quest continues, because it's in, in its own way, it continues on to uh, try to get to as many restaurants as I can. And that is my quest for food and how that all wound up. I'm very proud of myself and how it went. And I hope you enjoyed kind of hearing about the uh, quest for food and how that all worked out. Thanks for joining me on Dave's Disney View podcast, and I am out. I'll see ya. You can, of course, always find my podcast on iTunes under Dave's Disney View. 
Um, or feel free to visit my website at davesdisneyview.shorturl.com. And I'm hoping to, uh, to bring you some more great podcasts in the future, some things I hope you like. But please do email me anytime at davesdisneyview at gmail.com and let me know what you think or something you'd like to hear more about. And that's my show for this week. I am out. I'll see you. We've reached our destination in the 21st century. And I know, it went by so fast. But don't worry, the future is always in front of us. Hey, thanks for joining me on Dave's Disney View podcast for this week. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to email me at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Now, gather your personal belongings and step off onto the moving platform. The platform and your car are moving at equal and opposite speeds. The music you're hearing on this podcast is actually from a friend of the show named Craig Brown. You can check him out at ReverbNation.com slash SoundA, as an Apple, or MySpace.com slash SoundA. Craig does a number of different things. Uh, this particular piece is called A Major Suspension, Suspended Glory. So please do check him out, and we thank Craig for his music. 